Dr. Amanda Lizia is a researcher and lecturer at University of Technology in Sydney. She's also a workplace and organisational learning consultant. Amanda, I reached out to you on LinkedIn as we shared some of the same contacts. There were some at Lendlease, at UTS and at Woolworths. I, um, I saw your title and I was really interested in what you do. Firstly, can you explain a little bit about what it is that you do as a workplace and learning consultant? Mm, I know, I was thinking about this myself. <laughs> so, it's unique. Me. Um, yes and no. I mean, probably because I kind of bring the research angle is a little bit unique. Um, but there's quite a lot of people around, I guess, who do work in that space, that sort of learning development space. So that's my background. I was a you know, learning development board, a learning development manager for many, many years, um, went back to study, went back to do my PhD and then started doing it more as a consultant. So it can be anything from um, you know, designing a program, sometimes facilitating it, although not as much anymore. Um, so it'd be online, face to face, all different bits and pieces. Um, often it's sort of contributing expertise to strategy development. Mm-hmm. So, you know, organization might be working on their learning strategy or an aspect of it and kind of get me in, you know, to be part of a workshop or facilitate that workshop, things like that. Um, I also do professional development for learning practitioners. So, um, which is a bit sort of what I teach at um, UTS as well, but you know, things like instructional design, learning theory. Um, you know, how we tend to look at workplace learning, current research, that sort of stuff, um, and also research and evaluation. So um, sometimes an organisation will ask me to evaluate a program, so I kind of bring my research skills into that space um, to look at the effectiveness of something, and sometimes it's a bit more on kind of what I would consider the research end of the spectrum, which is probably a bit less evaluation and usually like a broader question. More sort of observation sort of stuff. Yeah, it could be observations, interviews, that sort of um, qualitative research type stuff. That's, that's the type of research I am. Yeah, okay. Your PhD was centred around learning in complex systems. Can you give us some insights into what you discovered? Oh, my God, how long have you got? Um, no, well, there's, You there's and I talked things. a little bit about those things. It was kind of, it was kind of cool, some of those um, like high note insights that you had about learning in a complex system. Yeah, it was interesting. So when I said learning in a complex system, what I did was took a kind of a subset of um, complex systems called complex adaptive systems. So a complex adaptive system is one that the agents, people in organisations, but it could be anything, learn and adapt so looking at learning, that you know, seemed like a really important thing to look at. Um, so I did a couple of things. I developed a framework to look at that, to look at the organisation. Mm-hmm. So how can we think about, I guess, a lens? How can we think about organisations in a way that helps us understand what's happening, mm-hmm. which is what theory and frameworks do? So that's how I used it. What came out of that was kind of interesting. Some of it was stuff we already know, which is people learn through the doing of work mm-hmm. more than anything else. That wasn't really earth-shattering, but it was kind of nice to find some more empirical evidence. Um, But what was kind of really interesting, I was looking at the experiences of work and learning, because I researched both together. It seemed, you know, if you want to talk about both, and that you best describe the work as being fluid. So it's very dynamic. It changes day to day. It's probably no surprise to people. You know, what I plan in the morning is not necessarily how my day pans out, the kind of problems I meet, the people I interact with. It's, it's, yeah, it's a very fluid and dynamic process, which is part of being in this complex environment where it's really emergent, um, unpredictable, what complexity scientists will call nonlinear. So that was sort of the first thing. And what that then started to help explain and start to tell the story of is 
why are people more likely to learn through work rather than through courses or more formal learning? And in part, it, you know, the research seems to suggest, well, it's because if it's unpredictable, how do I know what I need to learn? I can't mm-hmm. sign up for a course in six months because I don't know what's going to happen in six months. So people are learning through, they kind of meet a problem, they need to work through it. They don't even necessarily think of it as learning, it's just it's doing my job and, oh, that's right, I've done something like that before or my colleague has or I'll Google it or that sort of stuff. Um, so it started to, to tell that story and from an L&D point of view, it's of my other life, um, it really started to tell the story as well about we don't need to focus on job roles. Often learning and development, they'll have like some sort of competency framework or capabilities and it'll be attached to a like a job, like a marketing manager or a HR manager, something like that. And what my research was saying was actually you really need to look more granular. It's more about the, what sort of tasks do people need to do and how fluid is their job, how much change. Okay. So the people I interviewed, the people with the most fluid jobs um, were scientists, which is not too surprising because they're researchers, they're doing the same sort of work I do, um, and executive assistants. Okay. They had really similar jobs in terms of the fluidity and the demands on their time and lots of different things coming at them at once. Um, and they tended to mainly learn through work most of the time both of those groups sort of said yeah courses are not really for me there's nothing much that you know will help me yeah in that sort of space that was sort of the other oh there is no course to be an executive assistant well (laughs) yeah I mean it's sort of like oh you know I might learn a particular skill Mm. but what you know they could really articulate that well I don't have time for it a b you know I'm the one that has to keep on top of the systems I'm the one that helps people with their expenses I'm the one they come to when they don't know how to make a pivot table or something Mm-hmm. Um, and so they could identify really specific skills for specific tasks, but they sort of said, oh, like a lot of the courses are just for managers. You know, they're for more senior people. They're not really for me. Scientists, it was a bit more like a lot of fluidity, but they sort of described it as working at the edge of knowledge. So if they were going to do a course or something, it might be something boring like the expenses system, but they were likely to go and seek their own answers. They're the kind of problems they came up against were more like, I need a mathematical way of doing this new thing yep. that I haven't seen before. So, But they're still they're working their networks, they're you know, learning from other people, they're learning through the doing, and that was the main thing. But one of the things that really struck me, which is sort of what got me into research in the first place, was um, organisations still emphasise structure and measurement. So it's almost like two parallel systems happening. L&D people, HR, are putting in place courses, course calendars, online portals, which is fine, but people know they learn through work and can talk about that in quite an articulate way, but then there's this whole lot of box ticking that goes on parallel to it. Oh, I needed to do a development plan, so I just put a pause on there, you know, keep my manager happy, just needed to get it signed off, this kind of stuff. Yeah. And so that's where I'm kind of like the, the next stage of the research is going, well, what's happening there? What can we do to change it? What sort of stories are we telling ourselves that keep these sort of practices in place? Okay. You mentioned this isn't on the questions that I gave you, but that was a really interesting point about learning and adaptations in systems. Mm. Can you have learning without adaptation? Because if you're not really adapting to what you've just absorbed, is that true learning? Well, that, that's a really good question. Um, it depends who you look at. I would say no. Because learning is often talked about in terms of change. Yep. So if behaviour, you know, or mindset or something doesn't change, you know, you're not you really learning learned. and you haven't. Yeah. yeah. So you can adapt without learning, I think, but I don't think you can learn without having adapted, if that 
makes sense. Probably not. What's yeah, right. I think, so, yeah, because you can just react, you can adapt to something, but you don't necessarily reflect on it in such a way that you extract the learning from that. Yeah. You can just, it's a very stimulus response kind of That's way of it. doing it's, it. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of like the learning is the input and the adaptation is the output. Yeah, like it, I hadn't thought of it that way, but yeah, that, that could be one way of looking at it. Yeah. Philosophical. I mean, so I'm thinking in my head, oh, there's so many different learning theories and they all say different things. But, yeah, no, I think in practical terms I think that would be fair to say. Yeah, I, well, I, I just there's so much I don't know about this adult learning space in particular. Um, in a past role I did do a lot with um, video analysis of how children learn in research projects with, um, with the University of Sydney. Um, and that was really interesting because it was how they – how they play and and how how more they how they were more likely to get more exercise and be more competent if they were think if they were playing with things that were more natural like hay bales and kind mm. of the dirt and stuff rather than these really colorful playgrounds mm-hmm. so the more that they were sort of given to like basic things to explore with the more that they learned the more that they played the more physical output they had compared mm. to and I've always wondered if that transfers over to adults or if that's something that we just do as kids. But I guess like learning on the job is kind of like you're giving someone just the very basics. You're not giving them all of the, you know, the, the no way. bells I mean, and whistles. It's interesting. Yeah. So in the sort of early late 70s and early 80s, mm-hmm. um, there was a whole lot of talk around andragogy, like learning for adults, that it was different and there was a whole lot of, um, assumptions built around that. I'd probably say more recent research actually is more aligned with what you were describing. Mm. That, like, we know we learn through experience. It used to be assumed that adults somehow did that in a different way, but there's a lot of research now in, in the workplace learning space where it talks about, you know, the closer something is to what is really happening, mm-hmm. the more realistic it is, the, you know, better the opportunity for learning, the more enabling of learning that is. So it's, we get a lot of simulations. So in the building yep. you're in right now, for example, for nurses, um, you know, a couple of floors above us is a whole hospital ward. Yeah. Completely set up. I'm really familiar with Yeah, and, and, and yeah. where they do the simulations and things like that. And so I, I think they're actually starting to converge. I think we kind of had assumed that adults don't really play. And we don't call it play, but it's like what I found in my kind of PhD project People, you know, they bumble along, they meet a problem, something they haven't come across before. In working through that, they're learning about that and taking lessons for the future. Yeah. And the close, and that's why if it's embedded in your work, that's the best way because then you know where it fits, you've got all the context around it. And I imagine, I don't know as much about childhood education, but I can imagine that would be um, exactly it. And also, the, I'm guessing with children, from what I've read, it's the possibilities inherent, like if you give something quite structured. Again, it's the same sort of adults. If you give really structured models and this is the way we definitely do things, mm. it can get a bit constraining because then people just go, oh, well, if the model doesn't work, then we're a bit lost. Coaching totally. can be a bit like this. There's lots of coaching models and, like, they're mm. good, but you kind of got to find the one that fits you. It's not like that. And I've, I've been in organisations and, mea culpa, I've done this to people, <laughs> where you say this is the coaching model. Everybody's going to use this one. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't it doesn't work for everybody. It doesn't feel natural for everybody it should be more about the outcome. So what sort of skills will get you to that outcome yep. um, rather than being constrained. So I think there's actually a lot of similarities in the way we all learn. 
Yeah, okay. Um, it's a good segue because when we first caught up, I had just come from the University of Sydney where I had been workshopping with them about their new building and the massive change that will be happening for academic staff who will no longer have their own offices. And you actually had some great insights into how academic staff work. Um, like this new building is that they'll have a bunch of medical simulation and they'll have um, it'll be converging of a number of different um, health departments into one building so that people can collaborate as undergraduates before they get out into the workforce and have to collaborate in real life. Um, but you, yeah, the insights that you had about academic staff and how they work, how they think and what's important to them in a workplace. Can you share some of those insights that you had? Yes. I, I've been, they casually chatted about this with other academics and the, the response ranges from bafflement to horror. Um, I think in some ways it's quite different, I think. So, I mean, the way academics work, I think um, I think there's possibly some stereotypes that we're all a bit like Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory and we kind of sit quietly in offices and we just read and write and, you know, keep our heads down, um, which there's a grain of I truth. I love that. There's a grain Sheldon. of truth in that. Yeah. <laughs> and look, there, is a, there are Sheldons in every profession, but I think there's a grain of truth. You know, there is a lot of concentration work and, and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um I think what's really interesting in sort of what we were talking about and the sort of changes in the collaboration is that academics are already inherently collaborative. It's mm. most of what we do. Um, and we do that without that sort of physical activity-based working space. So that's why it's kind of, I was like, oh, that's interesting to sort of change your physical space. This stuff happens already. That's like the bread and butter of academia, you know, collaborators working on projects together, writing papers together. I um, mean, like before we started, I was talking about, you know, open door, closed door. Yep. And how there's, you know, in my experience, a general acknowledgement that, you know, if your door's closed, it means you're doing something that you need to concentrate on, you don't want to be disturbed, and people get that. But if your door's open, it's quite like people will pop their heads in all the time, ask questions. Um, it's probably more collaborative than some corporate spaces that I've been in where people can be in a completely open space but still be emailing one another. Mm-hmm. I don't find that's really the case. So, you know, I think there's, I don't know, a bit of a trend I suppose to get away from offices which I get but on the other hand you know academics do sometimes need that concentrated time or confidential space to talk to students um and talking about activity-based working is an interesting one because I've worked in places where that's been the case in the corporate sector and the one thing I find that really irritates people is there never seem to be enough meeting rooms Mm. um they seem to be at a premium and people trying to book them and actually like an academics office is their meeting room yes and so that's where that, and get back to fluidity of work, you know, it's a lot of in and out of people's offices, you know, you'll notice I have an extra chair in here already. Some people have little tables. So it's like an all-in-one. It's a workspace. It's a meeting room. It's a collaboration space. One thing I don't have in here, but a lot of academics do, especially in the sciences, is like huge whiteboards. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that collaborative work happens on these whiteboards. And actually there was a, an incident um, that a colleague at another institution told me about where a well-meaning cleaner went through and cleaned all the whiteboards in the department and then people like lost all the work that was on there all these calculations and bits and pieces so I think um oh yeah <laughs> oh my god what did you do and like oh well, I'm trying to remember what was on the whiteboard but well, how the, Matt Damon ever come through and complete the calculations well, exactly exactly <laughs> that's the thing the work is quite ongoing and it could be like pop in for half an hour work on it today and then go away think about it read something talk to someone else I'd be devastated if someone cleaned my whiteboard 
oh yeah, I think these guys really were. Oh wow. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I guess it was. Yeah, it's that the, the the offices are not just an office, but they well, kind you of mentioned, do all these functions. Well, yeah, and and I think when we first caught up, you mentioned they're a coat rack. They might have their bike inside the office. Yep, quite possibly. Sometimes some, there might be a yeah. little mini fridge that they're keeping their lunches in. You yep. know, it's yep. it's definitely you know you carve out a space in you know a space for yourself yeah. with everything that you sort of have a home away from home. Yeah, and like resources. I mean, I'm my office. Is, I haven't been in here very long. There's not as many books, but you know all the books people have, all the papers, all that sort of. Flotsam and jetsam that you know comes through. Yeah, um, needs to be put somewhere. And it's um, if I'm thinking about like I don't know exactly what they're doing at Sydney Uni, but if I think about that sort of activity based philosophy that I've experienced in more of the corporate space, um, I have some thoughts on that too. But um, in terms of academics, there's a lot of stuff mm. that comes with academics. A lot of the papery stuff, you know, we try and be online. There's some stuff you just can't be. Um, and so, like, where do you put that? can you can you squish all that into a locker getting it out every day that kind of stuff it's in some ways like puts structure around something that wasn't overly structured before yes Mm -hmm. yeah so that's kind of forcing people to work one way that might not be useful potentially yeah 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 um can you see any parallels between that type of working in universities and the corporate environments that you've been in? Like, have you seen anywhere that's sort of evolved from, uh, you know, lawyers are a really good example. It used to be they were given the corner office when they're mm. at a certain level. Now those are being taken away because, you know, real estate is expensive and also yeah. that um not to just foster collaboration, but to also save quite a lot of money mm. that they are trying to make the most of their space by having more yeah. open plan or more spaces for different bits of work so that if you want to collaborate, you go into a meeting room or a huddle space. But if you want to do your quiet work, then you've got a whole quiet zone of desks where it's just known that no one comes mm-hmm. up to you if you're in that space. So like from your experience with academia and the corporate world, can is there any sort of parallels you can see um oh yeah absolutely I mean with how people work and learn and stuff I guess yeah I mean look the the working and learning part it's sort of like it will happen people learn through any experience so that that's sort of you learn through wherever you are you know context is really important um but it's those I mean like there's a um like a theoretical kind of um, approach that I sometimes use. It's called practice architectures, but at a really basic level, what it is is practices are the building blocks of what we do. So at the moment, you know, we're doing like a kind of an interview, so there are certain practices that we kind of sit close, there's a recording thing. We kind of know what should happen. Same with meetings is a good example. People know there's a time you show up, people will be there, maybe you make small talk, there might be you know, tea and coffee, there's certain practices that we're used to in that sort of space. The art, But there are architectures, though, that help hold that in place and the physical spaces are usually a really good example of that. So meeting rooms are usually designed in such a way that everyone gets, okay, well, we sit around the table. We don't, like, stand around the walls or yeah. that sort of stuff. So it's, you know, the space kind of indicates what you need to do. Um, so I don't think there's that much difference in that way. People work with kind of what they've got. Mm-hmm. I suppose. I mean, what's interesting as well, there's not, like, it's it's not a settled area that it's any better to work in an open plan or that it necessarily breeds collaboration. 
Um, it's a really unsettled area of research. There's quite a bit against, there's a bit for. Um, I mean, it's interesting what I've seen in organisations, just anecdotally, like my own experience, is people do tend to carve out a space. They kind of gravitate towards the same desk or the same spot every day. Other people kind of get it. It's a bit like watching kids at school. It's like, that's my desk, but they don't really say that's my desk. They just sort of get yeah. there early so they can kind of mark out their territory. Um, so I think, you know, it's probably a little bit naive to think people will just, some people will, they'll just, oh, great, I can sit wherever I want, I can do whatever I like. Um, but with the cynic in me kind of says, well, maybe we should just be a bit more honest and go, it will save our company a lot of money. Yeah. And that's part of it. I think sometimes maybe we try and dress it up a little bit in other language and there might be some other benefits, but maybe we just need to be honest and go, you know what, if we save money here, it's more money to spend in other places or, you know. And it has benefits too. We're trying to save money, but we're, you know, by doing that we can actually enable you to work from home or, yeah, you know. So yeah. uh, so we, we've, we have to trust our people more. That, you know, being in a seat doesn't equal work, just work which, equals work. <laughs> which is, I think, something academia is much better at. Okay. Um, that is, in my experience anyway, and in people I've spoken to, very much the culture already. You're measured on outputs. Yep. Where you do those outputs, you know, where you might choose to do that um, is up to you. You know, yesterday, you know, I had to drop cars in for service and all this sort of stuff and arrangements of the family, so I was working on my back deck. Mm-hmm. Today, you know, and for most of the rest of the week, I'll be in the office. And that's perfectly acceptable behaviour. You don't, you know, nobody necessarily always expects to see you, which I think is where the corporate sector has been kind of trying to come along. Um, so I think yeah, it's always academic is probably a bit more advanced in that and some okay. corporate spaces a bit less so. And so I think that's that's a shift that if the physical space can help, then I think that's a good thing. Yeah, Okay. Yeah. Now your background is really interesting because I feel like the I feel like the best consultants kind of come from a broad range, like a, a broad background, and you've um, you've done that. So you've worked in so many different sort of different verticals. They I, I think of them in my head. I guess can you walk us walk us through some of your career highlights that contribute to your current role? Yeah, this is. It was kind of good to get this one in advance because you kind of have to think about it. And I've got this saying, I always say careers happen in hindsight. Totally. So some decisions I've made really consciously, but other times it's just like, oh, that seems fun. I'll do that. That seems like a good project. Yeah. Like some of the jobs I've hated over the years have actually been the best kind of learning experiences. So, um, yeah, I was, I was trying, trying to think of, oh, what have I, not just what have I done, but what's kind of lit me up a bit and pushed me in different directions. Um, I mean, I think probably the big thing for what I do now is that I got a breadth of experience early on. Mm-hmm. So I've done pretty much every L&D job that you can imagine. So I've done structural design, facilitation, even in the OD space, like performance management systems, talent planning. What's OD? Operational. Um, organizational development. Yeah, so it's um, the sort of area where you get things like the talent planning, succession planning, um, performance management systems, sometimes culture, that sort of stuff might fit in there as distinct from the learning, not every organization does it that way but sort of a jargony way of yeah talking about that different lot of I've work. worked in a lot of tech scale-ups we don't have those types of things well, in no. place really. and this is the thing it depends where you are <laughs> and what you do but yeah so I you know at one point I was like a traineeships manager for a really large enterprise RTO so then worked in the vocational education space and 
got some experience there and all of this is just sort of putting my hand up and going oh that looks interesting over there you know what's happening yeah I mean what's interesting about my career is I kind of started in really big companies so I started at Woolworths mm-hmm. which at that point and I'm pretty sure it's grown now I had something like 139,000 employees so it's huge so when you rolled something out you really were rolling things out to you know maybe 100,000 people in supermarkets alone this kind of stuff so that was really interesting but I was thinking back, I've actually got smaller each time because I wanted to do more end-to-end development of projects and more relationship building and that sort of thing. So I've kind of worked for a lot of big companies but then gradually kind of narrowed it down, narrowed it down. So that's helped because I've seen a lot of different places. I've seen what happens when it's really big and scaled up and then I've seen when it's more like a program for 10 people and you can really get in there and personalise learning and that sort of stuff. So I think, yeah, the the broad experience has been really important. Um, I did get a really good experience early on in retail. There's an award called the Joe Berry Award that I won in, I think it was 2003, and that was for an overseas study tour. And that really broadened the way I thought. I'd, I'd only, I was still putting you in my career and I'd only really spent time in Australia and I'd finished my master's degree in education by then. But it just was like, I was amazed what was happening overseas. So I got to go to the Shell Where Oil. Where did you go? Yeah. I went to, um, just outside of Amsterdam, it's the Shell Open University it was mm-hmm. then, which is a massive purpose-built training facility um, for the Shell Oil Head Office, basically. And they were doing really interesting things with learning spaces that we hadn't really started doing yet, you know, how to set up the room, even what colour to paint the room. Oh, I love um, this stuff. That sort of stuff, yeah. And, I mean, this is back in, like, 2004, I think it was, when I actually got to go there. So they were really ahead of the curve. Doesn't blue help you learn more? And you have a blue feature. Well, can you be interestingly, they were looking at more like the orange end, which is more energy and vitality and these sorts of things. So it's interesting to have those conversations with people kind of outside and maybe like, oh, wow, there's a lot more stuff we could be doing. And I got to go to Tesco in the UK and Marks and Spencer and just going, wow. To me at the time, it seemed like they were just light years ahead. Mm-hmm. and so but it just broadened the idea like wow there's a really big world out there and some really interesting stuff that is happening how can I bring that back to what we're doing back in Australia which at that point seemed to me to be kind of backward which I think is probably a bit uncharitable but I was just you know full of my new ideas and thought oh isn't this great yeah um so yeah that was definitely a really important experience and probably as well like uh, I mean obviously I've done some postgraduate study <laughs> you know these but that study really gave me lots of different perspectives, and I guess in a way that the study tour did, so that kind of reaching for something new. So when I, I my undergraduate degree is actually in psychology and sociology, and I thought I'd be a psychologist, and then I kind of changed my mind, and then a cruise advisor went, oh, you could try adult education. Okay, don't know anything about that, let's see, and it was just happened to be a really good fit. So I did Master of Education in Adult Education here at ETS, and then that really got me, I guess, set up and really established this kind of passion of mine, which is how do I how do I translate between kind of the theory and the research and the practice? Mm-hmm. And that's what ended up driving me into doing a PhD in part. Partly it was a personal goal, like a sort of a intellectual mountain I kind of wanted to climb. But also in terms of what I was going to research, I was just seeing the same old thing. We were just doing the same thing all the time, rolling out courses. I'd reschedule them because nobody was coming, all this sort of stuff. And that's got to be... There's got to be another way. I know, I know from the study I've already done how we learn through work. How and why are we not bringing this across and why am I not doing it and what's happening in there? Yeah. And so that's really leaving this place where I think that's why I still keep doing some sort of academic work and a bit of consulting work because to me it's about like forming that bridge. Yeah, well, you're on kind of a cutting edge um, sort of 
what would you call it like you're you're at the forefront so if you're sitting there if you're grabbing the latest research through your work at the university and then applying that to you know large companies who are seeking that latest information as part of your consultancy I mean that's just it's like farm to plate kind of thinking yeah a little bit and I think it does lend us like probably a little bit more credibility I guess like to sort Mm. of oh you know I'm I'm actively my colleagues yeah. and I are actively researching yeah. this area and going to conferences and doing all that academic stuff. Yes. You didn't do it so 30 years ago and retire and now call yourself a consultant. Yeah, which is, which is fine too. It's fine because yeah. you bring a lot of experience. And that's the thing I think, um, like feedback I've had that that's kind of the nice bit is that I do both. Yeah. Again, it's probably back to preconceived ideas about what academic types, you know, in inverted commas, kind of do and how they behave, which I think is probably not entirely fair, like pretty much. All my colleagues here have had other jobs and careers at different points and different background experiences, like yep. academic colleagues. So, um, but yeah, I think in my particular work, I've had the on-the-ground experience. I've I've headed up the the learning and development function. I've been that person, so I get that business side of it and the need to link to business strategy. But on the other hand, I can also say, well, no, with that in mind, you also need to be aware that actually maybe what you're proposing is not as effective as this other thing could be or this new research just come out that you know, talks about X, Y, Z. So I think I can have the conversation from both sides. Yeah. And what's that famous quote? Like, what if we train up all our people and they leave? And the answer is, what if we don't train them and they stay? Well, yeah. <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah, that, just that importance of the learning and development, not just ticking the box but actually, you know, getting some outcomes with well, the latest yeah, research possible. Yeah. And getting out of the way and letting people learn. You know, people learn through mm-hmm. work. You know, there's actually um, some of my colleagues here at UTS did some work a few years ago um, where they looked at, you know, and there's this memorable name of their paper is basically like, you know, the danger of co-opting everyday practices. And so, um, you know, there's some memorable examples where, and I've seen it, in fact, I'm pretty sure I've done it from time to time, but you see something working that's been quite informal and it's bubbled up in one area of the business. Actually, one of the people I interviewed for my um, PhD was working at a large bank and and said this, I said, well, you know, we kind of have these informal coaching relationships, but then what inevitably happens is someone from HR comes along and says, oh, that looks good. I've got some forms and stuff you could use for that. Oh, let's roll that out to everybody. So then suddenly there are proposed meeting agendas and there's a coaching model and there's so there's a lot of danger in that. You sort of do have to let go a little bit and let people learn and give them some tools to help them be more effective learners, but not necessarily spend tons of time training them per se yeah Mm. yeah um some of the best learning i've had is from failures actually oh absolutely when you fail and someone calls you on it um (laughs) well yeah and then the important thing is like being able to reflect on that yes being able to sit there and kind of sit with the discomfort yeah that's a really important part of learning is to kind of either you're facing something you haven't seen and you just I mean nobody likes that feeling it's like Mm. trying to learn a new language and you suddenly realize what you don't know and you think oh this is all too hard Mm. so being able to sit with that but then also be able to think about okay where did I go wrong what happened what will I not do again you know extracting the learning from the experience is really important yeah um what's the role of technology do you think in learning in complex systems Oh, technology and learning, that's a big one, isn't it? <laughs> because, I mean, yeah, like a, 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 there'll be places like like Salesforce. I used to work at Salesforce and they mm-hmm. have um, the trailhead 
it's a whole online learning course and I think mm. that's really popular for um, you know, a lot of different streams of learning. Universities themselves will have whole courses online mm. and that's just because you can access that with a laptop and the internet from anywhere. And that mm. definitely has its role because it opens up learning courses to people in rural areas mm. or people who can't do business hours, who can work after hours or whatever it is. Mm. And so it all has its kind of place. But but wherever you're seen in that kind of complex system of learning where people are learning on the job um yeah what what role can technology have for that oh look, i mean technology can help and hinder mm-hmm. i think so i mean i think you're quite right it, it's very democratizing we can do things now we couldn't do before like when i you know back when i first started out i'm gonna make myself sound really odd now but we didn't do online learning we did computer-based training which involves cd-roms <laughs> this kind of stuff yeah. so we were sort of doing stuff but actually, to be honest, actually, the content hasn't really changed. <laughs> it's still kind of a content delivery mechanism just now it's on Wi-Fi, but that's a whole other thing. So, yeah, I mean, technology, as long as it's enabler, yep. is useful. Um, so I think it is good to, you know, have options, you know, for busy people, have things like podcasts, have online talks. I mean, TED Talks, for example, are hugely popular. You know, I use them in class sometimes. Students are always talking about them. You know, people kind of want to learn from the experts. Um so there's definitely a role for it. I think probably the danger sometimes is what you don't want to get to, which occasionally happens, is people get really obsessed with the tool and don't think about what problem they're trying to solve. Okay. So you kind of end up shoehorning the learning into, oh, look, we got this fabulous new learning management system. Isn't it great? Now let's put everything in it because we've made the investment. Let's use all our, the capabilities in it. Mm-hmm. And I think I mean, it's like anything, particularly from a learning design point of view. Start from what you need to do, then find the tool rather than the other way around. Yep. Otherwise you can end up just, for example, just shoving everything online and maybe that's not the best way to do it. Yeah, if there's no structure in like when that gets updated or, you know, like yeah, I mean there's yeah. content that I did a writing course years ago and the, it got delivered to me on a CD-ROM <laughs> and it was crazy because it was um, like in the writing course, and I'm talking this might have been post-uni for me, so maybe, I don't know, 2005, they were using typewriters on the video and talking through things like that. And it's like, when was the last time you updated this content? Yeah. <laughs> and training videos, I mean, that's the hard just, bit. I'm always bleeding on about that. Like trying yeah. future. Pro- I remember you know, things like induct. I used to make training videos at one point um, and kind of still do from time to time. And you're like, for a start, it'd be kind of too long. Everyone want all their content have to be in a, you know, especially with safety, something like that. Content experts will come in and say, right, I have to tell them everything. But, yeah, you have to be kind of careful. One of the ones would be, you know, induction programs. It would be let's get the CEO on a video. You know, they, they're not, this person's not going to be able to come to every session, which is absolutely true. But you want to make sure you're going to at least get a few years out of that video. Yeah. You know, if you kind of go, you know, churn through senior management or something like that, it's not as useful to and then you've got to refilm it with a new person and, you know, put new bylines and all this sort of stuff. So, I mean, yeah, updating content is important. One, I mean, there's a whole new area now in the learning development professional space around learning curation. Oh, okay. So sourcing the right kind of material. So not so partly creating content but also sourcing from other places. There's a lot of open source stuff just out there, people putting things together. So how can you curate that in such a way that it might be like a almost like a learning playlist. And there's now systems that will help you do that kind of around the place. 
And they could be in different modalities. So it could, could be, be a podcast. It, it could, could be a Netflix s- series. It could be a podcast. It could be Netflix. It could be YouTube talks. It could be slide shares. Okay. It could be something to read. It could be like a book summary or that- a paper. Like it could be lots of different things. And actually some of I saw one demonstrated. I haven't seen it implemented, although I imagine it will be somewhere. But um, what it did was it was almost like an Amazon recommendation. So it would be like, oh, you just did our leadership module on, you know, asking effective interview questions or something like that, you may also be interested in. And then it would give, like, you know, this article, you know, this interview, this talk, you know, all these different things, um, which I have some reservations about because then you're not necessarily being exposed to new stuff. It's more getting into that whole problem like Google search. You, yeah, you get yeah. more of what you kind of search for. But, like, it's it's interesting and we can do it now because we really couldn't before. You had to be a bit more cookie cutter. Because, yeah. you know, how else, you couldn't personalise it to such an extent. Oh, okay. Yeah, so technology to really um, personalise the learning experience. That's that's a good way to go. And I think just that ad hoc stuff as well, like um, like a podcast or like a something that like a video that pops up onto LinkedIn. It's kind of an unexpected learning when yeah, it's thrown you yeah. away. And I find that works really well instead of like sitting and reading an article. Yeah, and, and I know, like, from my own research even, that people would say, look, I like the idea of online learning, but I just don't feel like I've still got to carve time out of my day. I still feel a bit mm. almost guilty sitting at my desk, like it's surfing the net somehow and that's a bad thing. And that was actually an interesting thing. I'd sort of The last question I would ask people is, what are your barriers to learning? And they would say time. Mm-hmm. And I go, yeah, of course, okay. And what was interesting was even though people know they don't, like we, everyone can kind of quote back to you, oh, you don't necessarily learn through courses or not as much and all sort of this 70-20-10 framework that's quite popular. Um, they will say, well, I kind of like the course because it's a way of managing my time. If I'm at a half a day or a one-day program, it's blocked out my diary. I have to physically go somewhere else. I'm not at my desk. People can't get in touch with me. I get that space, like it's my space for learning. Yeah. And it's a way to see other like-minded people and learn from their experiences. And that was actually a really valuable bit. Of yeah. that experience yep. so people do want content which is yep. fine but they do still need that sense of connection and community and to, and to make sense of what they're learning so you sort of oh well when both. when I used to um I used to consult um corporate workplaces on you know uh, co- like just corporates on when to exercise it was always like just make it a a appointment in your diary that you can't miss mm. and that will be more successful for you so it's the same sort of thing with learning mm. like if you're blocking out that time for coursework um just quickly what is 70 2010 oh so 70 2010 is a framework or a model probably call it um which a lot of organizations have put in place and what it, it's basically proportions so it is based on the idea that 70 percent or thereabouts of your learning happens through experience 20 percent happens sort of from other people and 10 percent they call you call it formal, so courses, reading, that sort of thing. Um, uh, it's an interesting one. It's, it's easy for people to understand. I'm not necessarily a massive fan of it because I think it can be a bit prescriptive and we tend to neglect the 70 okay. because people just assume that just happens, whereas actually you can facilitate that you can experience as well. You can help people get into different experiences. You can help them reflect on it. Um, but, yeah, a lot of organisations use it to structure their learning development offering. Okay. In terms of encouraging people, you know, getting them to realise it's helpful for that, you do learn through experience. How could you, you know, look at your next project as a learning opportunity? What do you want to learn out of it? Those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. I have a big question for you. Mm-hmm. 
You mentioned before that in your experience, meeting rooms are already always at a premium. Mm. And sometimes when we're talking to organisations, they're like, oh, we need meeting room booking as part of our um, technology solution. And our question is, okay, so why do you have so many meetings? Mm. The big question <laughs> is, do we actually learn from meetings? We How learn, well, well do we learn? We learn from any experience. It's probably the, the very short answer. Mm-hmm. Um, you could be learning what not to do, though. So <laughs> learning is but not wasting always an hour what of your to, time do. to do. That. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, again, it's right place, right time, right tool. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I've, I've had jobs where my whole day was meetings mm-hmm. and then you would do kind of the work you're actually paid to do later. You know, you'd answer email at night and that kind of stuff. So I think that's not productive. Um, I don't know. I think there are probably a few too many meetings in a lot of places, but it really, it, it depends. So are you just calling meeting because you just can't get hold of people and you just want to get everyone in a room? Um, is it one of these kind of, you know, sort of charmingly called butt covering meetings where you want to make sure you've got all the right stakeholders just so nobody can say they weren't included. That's not product. Like people mm. sit there going, why are we here? So it, it's like, I see meetings like I would plan some sort of learning session. You know, if it was a face-to-face session, I was like, What's the objective here? What are we trying to do? Why do I need these people? Um, and I think that's where, like, working in academia a lot at the moment, that's where we're probably a little bit better at it. The only meetings you really get invited to are, like, departmental-type meetings where you're trying to get a large group of people together, mm-hmm. um, and that might be, like, once every month or so. In other times, it's really just kind of, like, popping into someone's office and going, oh, look, do you have half an hour later today? We just need to catch up on that paper we've been writing, just need to finalise it so we can send it off. And yep. then it's like, oh, yeah, let's chat about it now. So... It's more like it's it's in the moment. It's when you need to get it done. So I think meetings can be really problematic. Cause yeah, I, and I think technology actually in some ways can reinforce it. Mm-hmm. So there's some there's some work that um, some academics have done, which is looking at how the defaults in technology solutions affect behaviour. Okay. So, like for example, you go to PowerPoint, everyone yeah. uses the bullet points. Right. Because it's in the template. PowerPoint in- can do lots of stuff. But we just go, oh, well, it's there. <laughs> in calendar, when we book a meeting yes, for an hour, that's the about. default. Exactly. And you can change the default to but, half an hour or 15 minutes, but people don't tend to fiddle with the default. No. And in some cases, defaults are locked down in organisations. They don't want you to fiddle. So that's the thing. If a meeting, it may have been a five, 10-minute corridor chat, but we oh, better make a meeting. And in some ways, you know, some productivity-type programs have encouraged it. Because they've, and, you know, not without reason, said, well, to respect people's time, let them know that you need their time, which is, that's noble. Yeah. But then you have to ask yourself, is this just a quick question or do we, or is it, could we grab a cough? Like, I think that people don't interrogate enough. Like, what do I want the meeting for? And, yet, yeah, do it doesn't have to be an hour. Although having said that, I worked with one organisation where they had set the default to half an hour because they wanted snappier meetings. Every meeting ran over time. Yeah. <laughs> and so then people were getting stressed because then the meeting bookings were attached to that and people were meant to be and people would then book back-to-back meetings and there was no breathing space and it was a whole mess. Oh, so, yeah. yeah, so I think techn- like those sort of meeting defaults yeah. don't necessarily help. They can actually kind of reinforce, oh, well, a meeting is a one-hour thing. And there's no – I find it funny that there's no padding in and after a meeting. Like, mm-hmm. so if a meeting is at 1 o'clock, how come it doesn't pad 10 minutes before for meeting prep? And ten minutes after for just immediate meeting follow up. Yeah, I mean, I've worked in places like that we have could tried do that. that. <laughs> yeah, look, I, and I've worked in an organisation that tried that because yeah. yeah, they did like the employee survey, and this was it was a big bugbear for people, and they did sort of try that, and 
I think it's like anything, like there's something called the Hawthorne effect, which is when you intervene, you just by even observing, you can improve performance because someone knows you're watching. Is that because of Hawthorne Football Club? No. It's, <laughs> it's like they've been so well, dominant for so long. Actually, I hadn't thought of that. Um, no, yeah, no, they're the original walk. researcher that kind of did the work in the, in the early 20th century. But I like you thinking there that, yeah, good football club. But, um, yeah. but, yeah, so we know, you know, people will change just because just there's been a change or a tweak. Yeah. And so it's like how do you continue the behaviour? Yeah, like how do you, you know, it was suggested that meetings shouldn't be any more than 45 minutes, say. Yeah. Give it, and I mean, like. Anyone who's been to uni, if you've been an undergraduate, you know, like lectures are actually only 50 minutes. There's, yeah. There's, there's meant to be this 10-minute buffer, so at least you can race from one end of the campus to the other if you have to. Um, we're just not very good at it in corporations. But I think we do try to be quite structured. It's about planning time and controlling time. And if I think about work fluidity, that was never going to work anyway. Yeah. You, you're probably better off to actually start shifting and going like, maybe we don't need any meetings. Start from there and then we're, which ones do we really, really need? And yeah. work up from that point. Okay. Um, I've taken up so much of your time, but I guess my – I'll go on um, – yeah, I guess on our initial exchange we actually spoke at um, – we spoke about learning via a podcast and I expressed that it's a great medium for me because I can listen and do other things. So I can do – you know, I'm walking to the train station, I'm driving, I'm doing like housework tasks. I listen on the beach when I'm running. Um, but I find while I listen to a conversation then discuss something mentioned with people around me that that learning really sticks. Mm. So it's kind of like I've learned something kind of podcast and then I'm teaching someone or I'm, I'm talking. And that's just anecdotal evidence of one person. But does your research give us any insight into the best way to teach busy adults oh that is I if I can solve that I would just sort of bottle it not tell you and then probably flog it to everybody but um I mean what you're describing is true that you are podcasts are interesting because they're a bit like a lecture effectively Mm -hmm. because you're getting content delivery and it could be quite schmink but it's still content delivery but sometimes it's a conversation like well exactly and that's the thing and then by you then going and having more conversations Mm. that's helping you process that and reflect on it and situate it in your context Mm -hmm. which is really important so I I think like there's a lot of research around that that if you some people learn through just listening that's fine but yeah that processing will really help embed it make sense of it which parts of it do I want to try out in my own practice? Like we were talking before about, you know, um, like productivity sort of podcasts and you know, decluttering your home and that sort of stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. What's going to take it from I'm feeling good for just listening to I'm actually tidying up my paperwork? Yeah. Um, and that's kind of the interesting things of podcasts. And there's, I actually use it in class because I think it's an interesting thing to think about. It's really popular. And I've been in organisations where it's been actively requested you know, please give us podcasts, particularly external clients who you might be delivering learning to about your products or whatever. And so I think there's a lot of merit and it needs a bit of work. Um, but like anything, it's, is it the right tool for the job? So one that I give my students is an example of a podcast program. So it's a, I listened to it on a podcast about a podcast. It was very meta. But basically what the <laughs> ultimate program was about, and I can't remember the lady's name who did it, unfortunately, but um, it was on a podcast called Learning Uncut. Um which you're giving an example of it was more like sort of awareness raising for general practitioners, so for doctors, mm-hmm. um, about intravenous drug users and okay. kind of trying to challenge stereotypes about a lot of the people coming in could be, you know, they could be the high-functioning executive. You don't know. And what it did, the podcast, from what I understand it, was then actually did interviews with people, mm-hmm. so actually with a drug user or with the, you know, the community nurse or whatever, and then it was like a, it went from one-day course, I think, to something like a six-part podcast 
podcast series. But that was a really interesting one because you would probably mm-hmm. never have got someone from a vulnerable group to come and talk to a lecture hall full of doctors, but they were prepared with the anonymity of the podcast. So it does offer yes. some really cool opportunities in that space. You can flip it, though, and go, what if it was a program, though, that you wanted to know if people had learned things? I think that predictability of learning, like if it was something like compliance, for example, which is usually yeah. bores people to tears, but you need to know they've done it and learned it. So there's a lot of podcast metrics about you know, how many people accessed it or downloads or you could possibly even track through a website who downloaded it if you needed their, you know, got their email or something like that. But how do you know they listened to it? Under what conditions did they listen to it? You know, were they concentrating on it? Were they multitasking? Which bits were more relevant? What did they take in? So, like, it's really good for busy adults. I think if you want to just get content out, if you want to incorporate it into more of a program, then it starts some more interesting questions about sort of assessment and evaluation and what else can you build around to support, like, the kind of reflection that you were talking about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, this is why you're the consultant and I'm just like, <laughs> but I could learn that on a podcast. Well, <laughs> Give me I, a comprehension I exam and I probably would fail it. <laughs> thing, I listen to podcasts all the time. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like anything you listen to and it's why universities have moved away from lectures a bit mm-hmm. because you just it's content delivery, Yeah, which is not a problem in and of itself, but you've got to actually kind of do something with that content to make sense of it for you. Mm. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I find... I can fold the washing. That's about the extent of it when I'm doing a po- listening to a podcast. If I'm doing anything more complicated than driving or my brain wanders off into the task and then suddenly I snap back and go, oh, gosh, how much have I missed? Yeah. I mean, the other thing about podcasts is they're really interest-based, like at the moment. So if you were doing this for workplace learning inside an organisation, you'd either have to make it like the must-listen thing or in some other way because like I'll listen. Like I like sewing. That's one of my hobbies. I will happily spend an hour listening to two women natter on about sewing machines and thread and rent some people that would be their idea of health so interest plays a really big part in people being prepared to listen to the podcast yeah okay Mm -hmm. um i think the biggest takeaway from today is that that um what you're doing i guess with that learning curation part for me that Mm -hmm. that is a really interesting part so when you've got when if you're the expert in the field or if you're working with an expert in the field to be able to curate the content from like curate the content to create the learning, I guess, from all different modes. Mm. And you can kind of, yeah, come at it from so many different angles. But as long as you're the overarching kind of uh, professional in that area, then, yeah, you can just bring in, assess the content as it comes in and give, like, best case examples, add your little notes over the top, and and that sounds like a pretty good course. And I think adding some, yeah, some scaffolding to it, some sense-making to it yeah, um, to help people contextualise it for their own like day-to-day professional life. Okay. Um, if people want to get in touch with you about your your research or your consultancy, how do they do that? Probably LinkedIn is the best one. LinkedIn. Yeah, I'm on there. So Dr. Just Amanda Lizia on LinkedIn. She does write back. I cold, cold, <laughs> I cold wrote to her and, and she does write back, so that's a good place to start. Oh, well, that's the, the Achilles heel <laughs> of academics. It's like, oh, someone's interested in my work. Yay. <laughs> so true um but yeah thank you so much for your time thank you for having me i really appreciate it and um yeah uh if you need to talk to amanda get in touch on linkedin um she is definitely worth the consultancy fee (laughs) (laughs) thank you see ya